Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an outburst of demonstrations across China expressing pent-up anger at the draconian COVID restrictions that Xi Jinping has imposed on the people who rarely challenge a government with the world's most pervasive surveillance systems and population control. Joining us is an expert on democratic aspirations in China that the communist government appeared to have extinguished after the Tiananmen massacre. Joining us is an expert on democratic aspirations in China that the communist government appeared to have extinguished after the Tiananmen massacre. Perry Link holds the Chancellorial Chair for Innovative Teaching Across Disciplines and is also a Professor of Comparative Literature and Foreign Languages at the University of California, Riverside. He is one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture and people and has translated many Chinese stories, writings and poems into English. In the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protests in June of 1989. He was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. Then we'll examine the deal brokered by Norway in Mexico between the Maduro government and the Venezuelan opposition to release frozen funds in European and American banks for critically needed food and medical supplies, as well as a move by the United States government to allow Chevron to invest in Venezuela and import its crude oil. Joining us is Francisco Manaldi, the fellow in Latin American Energy Policy at the Center for Energy Studies in the Mexico Center and Latin American Initiative at the Baker Institute, as well as a lecturer in energy economics at Rice University. He is also the founding director and a professor at the Center for Energy and Environment at ESA in Venezuela, and previously was a professor of political economy at the Universidad Católica Andrés Bello in Caracas, Venezuela. Then finally, with billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg pledging to give away their massive fortunes, we'll assess what extent of these benevolent offerings reach charities and how the taxpayer chips in 74 cents of those dollars in lost federal revenue as donors claim deductions. Joining us is Chuck Collins, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he directs the program on inequality and co-edits inequality.org. He's the author of Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality. Is inequality in America irreversible? And his latest book just out is The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. We'll discuss his article at CNN, We Should Be Skeptical of Billionaires Who Pledge to Share Their Wealth. And joining us now is Perry Link, who holds a Chancellorial Chair for Innovative Teaching across disciplines and is also a Professor of Comparative Literature and Foreign Languages at the University of California, Riverside. He's one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture, and people, and has translated many Chinese stories, writings, and poems into English. In the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protests in June of 1989, and he was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. Welcome to Background Briefing, Perry Link. I'm happy to be here, Ian. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Perry. And going back to Tiananmen, of course, there was an expression of democratic aspirations led by students. It was brutally crushed by the government, and you got the inside scoop from leaked documents and then have been banned from China by the Chinese Communist government. But what we're seeing, and maybe we're seeing a distorted picture or we're being too optimistic in thinking that there's a a sort of revolution underway or a counter-revolution, but at least what we're learning from these protests across China is that there does seem to be an aspiration for freedom and democracy and dignity. So how does it strike you? I think you're right. I think the underlying cause here is that uh, thirst for freedom and democracy and dignity uh, the uh, catalyst that drives it is the question of the uh, zero tolerance for COVID that Mr. Xi Jinping brought in and has staked his own political fate on. So that's a very sensitive issue and one that's going to lead him to crack down, I'm afraid. And then on top of that, we have another catalyst within the question of the COVID policy, and that's that a couple of days ago in uh, Ulumuchi in Xinjiang region, uh, there was a fire and 10 people died in the fire and a number were injured because they couldn't leave. And the reason they couldn't leave was that they were locked in on the anti-COVID uh, policies at the time. So this struck a chord all across the country. Not that everyone all over China knew those 10 people or even knew much about that city, but it's a vicarious response. That happened to you. We, too, everywhere here have suffered from the COVID crackdown. And that COVID crackdown itself is a, an example of the humiliation we feel in other spheres. So it's like a pyramid in its structure, and it's a significant thing. So how did the Chinese people learn about what happened to the building that caught on fire and killed 10 people locked in in Xinjiang, which is in quite a distance from Beijing yes. and Shanghai? How do they know about this? Well, they know it through the Internet. Of course, when the Internet arose, we all thought now the Chinese people are going to be able to communicate freely and so on. That turned out not to be the case. The government has spent a lot of time and effort and money to repress the Internet, to censor things they don't want there. And that goes on. And yet when something like this happens, it's just too big and too multifarious for the censors to keep up. So word gets out anyway. And a certain portion of these uh, internet users use VPNs to, as we say, jump the great firewall. And so they can get out and see what uh, BBC is saying and uh, CNN. And so it's, that's how it spreads. It's just too much of a flood to be blocked entirely. But on the other hand, as you say, that Xi Jinping is lucky to crack down and obviously you can't underestimate the Communist Party's brutality. And she is, of course, just like Putin, is paranoid about any kind of revolution or a color revolution. Okay. Um, so I take it that all these demonstrators have been photographed and logged in through facial recognition technology that's yes. ubiquitous. Yes. China has by far the world's most a tight system of uh, public recording of 
countenances that can go into computers and track down who's done what. And it's already plain that some of the more bold protesters have been taken away for interrogation. And some of them may disappear, not come back. Some may come back. But the first step of the government in detaining someone is to get them to talk, uh, ideally to talk about who else was involved in any kind of planning, because they want to find the leader in order to cut off the head of the leader. And that's one reason why the protesters are uh, being so defensive in not allowing a leader to emerge. That, for example, is one reason why they hold up blank sheets of paper. Everybody knows what they mean by holding up a blank sheet of paper, but it doesn't say anything, and we don't have leaders, we don't have an organization, is what they say. And these are defensive moves to try to make the work of the uh, secret police more difficult. I say secret police, they're not really secret, they're, I should say, plain clothes police, but they're very apparent and very active. And they do infiltrate the crowds as well. Of course, yes. So some of the aspirations, though, have been really quite moving. There's a, in a, one of the demonstrations in Shanghai. This woman shouted out, we want respect, not lies. We want reform, not a cultural revolution. We want a vote, not a leader. We want to be citizens, not slaves. Right. So, again, it gets back to Tiananmen, doesn't it, in the sense that after Tiananmen, the Communist Party mm-hmm. cracked down on dissent and encouraged nationalism and consumerism yes. and materialism. And it looked as if there was a certain passivity that had gripped the country. But now we're getting glimmers of the fact that people still harbor these wishes. for And a... will continue to. In my, analysis, my understanding... Uh, Ian, is that this really originated in the tremendous crackdowns under Mao, the the body blow to Chinese civilization that Mao Zedong delivered with his Great Leap Famine and his Cultural Revolution, have left the country still trying to recover. And these young people that came out in the 80s and now are coming out now are symptoms of that long-term effort to recover from the disasters of the Mao period. Nobody puts it quite that plainly, but I think if they could in private, they would say that too. Well, but this is what I find puzzling, Perry, is that Xi Jinping himself, when he was 13, he was beaten up and denounced because his father was considered to be a liberal, uh, which is hard to believe. And then his mother, his own mother, even informed on him, and then he was sent into the northeast to do backbreaking farm work when he was 15 instead of being uh, against maoism here he is encouraging maoism he's one of what we call the hong dai the second generation red anointed you might call them uh, his rivals in reaching that position like bo lai whom he elbows aside about 10 years ago, are also this Hong Dai. They have been through troubles in the past, yes, but they still have this sense that we are special. We're the anointed second generation of the original revolution and therefore better than other people. And it's easier for us to rise in the system. 
So when Xi Jinping had the chance, he went to Zhejiang and into Fujian to do provincial work and climbed the ladder. And with his uh, red second generation credentials and his savvy, I don't think he's, he's not a very well-educated man, that's for sure, but he has learned the ropes in how to rise in a system like that and successfully got to the top, elbowed his way there, and now is certainly attentive to the people around him. I mean, if these demonstrations result in any kind of political change, and I'm not ready to predict that will happen, but if it happens, it's not going to be because be because the protesters suddenly take over the government offices. It'll be because rivals of Xi Jinping in his red anointed generation who are watching him will grab onto the chance to say, you blew it. You made a terrible mistake with your COVID policies and they've led to these rebellions and they've led to an economic downturn. So we are going to elbow you aside. That is the source of Xi Jinping's paranoia, as indeed it was for Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong was always very worried about the potential rivals right around him. So why did he take this path then that seems so boneheaded? Is it to do with the fact that the Chinese won't accept Pfizer and the Moderna foreign vaccines? They're the Sinovac's the one that they've created doesn't work. So doesn't work as well, right? Right. Yeah. So what what's the explanation for this draconian policy of locking people down and multiple testings and obviously it goes back to the middle ages, the quarantine, but it's clearly not working and the contrast here in the United States even though there've been vaccine resistance still yeah. in so much better shape than they are in China. Right. Well, when the COVID broke in the winter of 1920, that is 2019, 2020, uh, you'll remember that the European countries like Italy suffered intensely and the U.S. turned out to have one of the most infected rates. Meanwhile, in China, uh, it seemed controlled and it seemed controlled because of uh, draconian lockdowns of the city of Wuhan and elsewhere. And by the summer of 2020, the propaganda system in China was crowing the superiority over the authoritarian Chinese system. Because look, we controlled COVID and Italy and Germany and Spain and the U.S. are in bad shape. So this led Xi Jinping to tie his personal prestige to the policy of uh, crackdown on COVID. And as I say, it worked for a while. Now, because of the reluctance to use the effective vaccines, and because China's po population is just so large, the virus has gone wild again, is spreading. And so Xi Jinping is faced with a terrible dilemma. If he says, yes, I blew it, then he loses face, and that makes it more uh, likely that his rivals can elbow him aside because it's a mistake and it's a huge mistake. Therefore, he's got a huge investment in proving that it's not a mistake. <laughs> and that's why whatever happens, I'm going to stick with this zero tolerance policy to the end. I don't know in his private mind right now what he would be thinking of can I really stick with this now or not? But anyway, the reason why 
he's so insistent on it is because of the political prestige that he's invested in going that route. Well, he's also invested an awful lot and been successful in avoiding any inquiry into the origins of uh, COVID, which obviously started in China itself. So to that extent, he's been successful, right? It's a bit ironic now that it's coming back to bite him. Yeah, and the issue of uh, uh, showing that it originated in a lab leak, that issue is coming back. The Republicans in our country are pushing for it. And in Australia and elsewhere, there have been calls to hold the Chinese government responsible for damages because of the worldwide spread of COVID. It might seem very far-fetched that that could ever happen, but to Xi Jinping, he has to be afraid of that. He has to be afraid that world opinion and maybe even world lawsuits will come after him for letting uh, the COVID virus spread everywhere. Well, you recall, Perry Link, when Australia called for an investigation into the origins he really went crazy, Xi Jinping, and did all that wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, yes. you know, banned Australian imports into China, etc. Uh, so he's, it's obviously a very sensitive issue to him. Yes, very sensitive. But not because of the spread of the disease itself. He's afraid of being held responsible uh, financially and legally for it. Well, and we, we probably will never know, right, uh, how it originated. Well, uh, never's a long time. I think maybe <laughs> well, there are there are Chinese scientists who were at the at the scene and have memories. That one of the most important ones who blew the whistle, ironically, died of COVID. But there are others, and I'm not completely pessimistic that the true story of a whether it leaked from the lab and if so how uh, might come out. It still might. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Perry Link, for the longest time, it's always been a question with Chinese scholars in the West, always sort of assuming that China has these great plans to take over the world, etc. And uh, certainly that's what goes on in the Pentagon in their mind, that this is the new adversary, that we've got to be ahead of the Chinese in terms of our military strength, etc. But the reality has always been, as far as I know, Perry, is that for all of the grand plans of of becoming the global hegemon, the Chinese leaders' main focus is they're looking over their shoulder. And you've just made it clear that that Xi Jinping is looking over his shoulder. uh, Somebody's out to get him. There's no question that the overwhelming focus of concern in Beijing by Xi Jinping and by others is politics inside China. Even the issue of Taiwan, for example, I think the West sometimes misunderstands that the threat to invade Taiwan is a thirst for territory. It isn't really. It's, it's to, to show inside China that I, Xi Jinping, am the hero of Chinese nationalism. And I'm going to stand up and try to take Taiwan because it uh, adds to my political prestige at home and makes all the people with nationalist feelings uh, come to my side. That's the the crucial issue there. It's not that he uh, admires the seagulls off the western coast of the beautiful Taiwan island. 
<laughs> well, but now he's probably thinking, looking at what Putin has done and maybe having second thoughts that if you fail, well, yeah, you're in big it, trouble. Yes, I'm sure that's right. And just another major dilemma that's inside his mind. And I don't like the man from a distance, but I can almost feel sorry for him with the dilemma of that, that is when and how to attack Taiwan, and right before his nose now, the dilemma of whether or not to backtrack on the zero-tolerance COVID policy. Tremendous pressure to do that now, but tremendous costs if he does it. Hmm. So, well, we'll stay tuned, and I thank you for joining us, Perry Link. Okay, my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Perry Link, who holds the Chancellorial Chair for Innovative Teaching Across Disciplines and is also a Professor of Comparative Literature and Foreign Languages at the University of California, Riverside. He's one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture, and people, and has translated many Chinese stories, writings, and poems into English. In the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by high-level Chinese officials that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protests in June of 1989, and he was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the deal brokered by Norway in Mexico between the Maduro government and the Venezuelan opposition. In the haze of the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Francisco Monaldi, who's a fellow in Latin American Energy Policy at the Center for Energy Studies in the Mexico Center and the Latin American Initiative at the Baker Institute, as well as a lecturer in energy economics at Rice University. He's also the founding director and professor at the Center for Energy and the Environment at IESA in Venezuela, and previously was a professor of political economy at the Universidad Católica Andres Bello in Caracas, Venezuela. Welcome to Background Briefing, Francisco Monaldi. Thank you. So, Francisco, what do you make of the deal that was brokered with the Norwegians as acting as the middlemen to bring together the Maduro government and the opposition in Mexico City in some kind of an agreement? Obviously, they have not agreed on how to conduct the 2024 elections, but what exactly have they agreed on? Basically, you know, this is uh, a long time coming and uh, a lot of it uh, has to do with the, the U.S. Uh, reapproachment with uh, the Maduro uh, regime uh, starting in, in March in the sense that what brought back uh, uh, Maduro to the table was the idea that on the one hand, this uh, humanitarian agreement in which uh, some of the funds that are frozen because 
Maduro is not uh, recognized by some co governments, uh, could be used for a, a humanitarian program uh, coordinated by the United Nations. And the other thing is the license to, to Chevron uh, to invest uh, uh, and to do uh, you know, more in terms of their, their operations uh, uh, on the oil industry in Venezuela. So basically those two things were the sort of the carrots that brought back uh, Maduro to the negotiation table with the uh, you know Norwegians uh, playing the the the, the uh, you know the were the mediators of the of the of the deal and but so far we we have just sort of a start of 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 a dialogue rather than uh, something else I mean it, it, of course it's important the, the humanitarian agreement is it's an important one uh, but uh, we will see if this will lead to further. Uh, um, you know, concessions in terms of democrat democratization of the country. So the frozen funds in European and American banks, they will be unfrozen via the United Nations. The money will then go to purchase food and medicine. In other words, they've got an agreement out of Maduro that the money actually goes to help the Venezuelan people who were suffering uh, enormously for, from his misrule. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's unclear. I mean, the, the amount seems to be around $3 billion, but it's unclear exactly what funds they're talking about. Uh, and, and it will be a gradual uh, disbursement of those funds. As far as I understand, they have a specific project that they have come into agreement about uh, with the, also the participation of the United Nations. And those are mostly in infrastructure related to health, uh, uh, electricity and uh, uh, access to uh, water and food. Well, the the health system has basically been totally crippled, has it not? Yes, the the health system is in in, in really really bad shape. And basically, Venezuelans today, when they go to a hospital, first of all, they have to bring everything. The other, the, I mean, the the hospitals don't have any inputs to proceed with any anything. So this is uh, gonna help reestablish uh, some of these uh, infrastructure and uh, some of the inputs required for providing health services. And in terms of the oil deal to let Chevron back into the country, the U.S. government has agreed to do that. Will that involve importing more Venezuelan crude oil to the U.S.? Because for the longest time, the U.S. was importing Venezuelan crude and the refineries on the Texas Gulf coast were designed to process this oil and now of course with cutting off Russian oil there's been an initiative from the White House to negotiate with Maduro over oil so that's your specialty Francisco so is the subtext in, in the back here of this whole issue is the US trying to get Maduro to break with the Russians or at least to step back from his involvement or dependence on Russia? Yeah, well, you know, in the current circumstances, Russia cannot help much Venezuela. Uh, there are basically three uh, important partners of the national company of Venezuela that operate in the country still. One is Chevron, the other one is uh, the Rus uh, Russian national company, the other one is the, the Chinese. So uh, the Russians are not investing in Venezuela. The Chinese, <clears throat> partly because of US sanctions, have uh, not been investing, and and Chevron, of course, has not been allowed to invest uh, by the because of the sanctions uh, regime. And so, 
as you pointed out, until 2018, Venezuela's uh, major market was the U.S. The Venezuela exported more than half a million barrels of oil uh, to the U.S., and that was a big blow when they were when that market was closed. And also, Venezuela imported, interestingly, some diluent for the extra heavy oil uh, from the U.S. So this uh, uh, will uh, reestablish some of that trade, but with with a very restrictive way for now, at least. So it seems that the U.S is uh, um, relaxing a little bit the, the, the sanctions with respect to Chevron, but in a way that will uh, sort of put sort of a line of carrots for the Venezuelan government that they will have to continue uh, uh, giving some concessions to, to get the full benefits of this, uh, uh, of this flexibilization. Because for now, for example, uh, Venezuela will not be able to collect any taxes or royalties uh, from the proceedings from those exports. Those exports will go only for now to pay Chevron the uh, billions of dollars that they are owed by Venezuela and uh, for Chevron to invest, to reinvest in the oil projects, but not uh, so far for the Venezuelan government, which is something that I think is disappointing to Maduro. Maduro expected to get some cash flow from this. Uh, so we have to see how uh, if it proceeds smoothly uh, uh, going on. And what's the relationship with China? I mean, I noticed that uh, China just forgave Cuba for its debt. Obviously, Venezuela is deeply in debt to China, and they've been paying for it with oil exports. But as you say, the sanctions have cut into that. They've been doing sending in tankers without transponders, I believe, doing yes. some sort of black market deals. But What's the status of the Chinese involvement with the, the Venezuelan oil patch? Yeah, that, that's very interesting. As I mentioned, they are, uh, along with the other two, uh, one of the big players in terms of, uh, of production. But more importantly, as you point out, the, uh, Venezuela owes China uh, probably around $20 billion because they haven't been paying uh, interest in the, in the past few years, particularly since the U.S. Uh, threatened for, with secondary sanctions CNPC, which is the national company that was uh, uh, taking the oil from Venezuela to China, uh, has not been importing. The, as, as, as you said, the oil, uh, almost 95% of Venezuelans exports today, which are a little bit uh, up of 500,000 barrels in total, go to China, but through uh, black market channels. They are reported by independent refineries in China as oil coming from Malaysia or from Oman or other places. So uh, the Chinese are not collecting on this. So if uh, uh, there are two very crucial uh, potential uh, uh, sanctions relief that, that Maduro is looking forward to. One is uh, that, that the secondary sanctions to China and to India, which was the largest market for Venezuela's oil uh, uh, after the U.S. market was initially uh, closed, uh, the, the, the Indians have been asking for a license as, as, uh, as much as Chevron for the last two years, and they haven't gotten it. So this could be further steps. India allowed to import and China allowed to import. And that will mean that China would be able to invest again in the oil industry in Venezuela. And what about Russia? You, obviously, Russia is preoccupied in Ukraine and becoming more and more isolated internationally. Is there a subtext there in the terms of the Biden administration trying to ease Maduro away from the Russian orbit? I mean, it seems unlikely that Maduro is going to 
give up on his ties to Cuba because particularly the Cubans are instrumental, are they not, in maintaining his protection in terms of their presidential protection and through the intelligence services, which the, apparently the Cubans have a lot of influence over the Praetorian Guard that's protecting Maduro himself. Yeah, that, you're right. I mean, the, Cuba is absolutely essential in understanding how Maduro has been a, able to hold to power. And, and he's not going to, uh, you know, there's not going to be a, any light between Maduro and, and, and the Cubans. With the Russians, the situation is more complex now because they are uh, in trouble and they are not going to be able to help that much. But I still think that the Venezuelan military, uh, particularly General Padrino, the head of the armed forces, is very close to the Russians and he will try to continue having a relationship, particularly because, you know, the Russians will continue to be the suppliers of Venezuelan equipment. I mean, they, they, don't, they don't have, I mean, it will be very hard for Venezuela to switch back uh, to, to the U.S. Having said that, uh, I think that um, Maduro needs to explore this, uh, this option with the U.S. because, you know, Russia was helping Venezuela to avoid uh, U.S. sanctions. But the problem now is that not only the Russians have been sanctions themselves and, and they are not helping Venezuela anymore. But now, actually, Russia is competing in the black market with Venezuelan oil in China and actually it, it, with a better quality oil uh, and with bigger discounts. This has been a big problem uh, for Maduro. So I don't think Venezuela will break uh, uh, fully with the Russians, but certainly the, the relationship now is uh, less uh, uh, useful uh, uh, to Maduro. On the other hand, I think the Cubans will uh, uh, tell Maduro, as, as he himself probably realizes, that the relationship with the U.S. is problematic because, you know, for example, there could be a new U.S. president two years from now that uh, has a different position. Uh, uh, you know, imagine a Republican uh, uh, like uh, DeSantis in, in, in Florida or, or, or even Trump. So I think he realizes that he, he will uh, do as much as he can uh, with the Americans as long as he, his hold on power is not threatened and, uh, and, and he can remain having alliances elsewhere. Well, the U.S. obviously invested heavily in, in Juan Guaido, the opposition leader, but he's not proven to be effective. I don't know whether it's a lack of political support within the country or the fact that he's up against a kind of dictatorship in terms of Maduro. So what's the situation there in terms of them getting together? I mean, is Wido simply a means by which Maduro has to negotiate with him in order to unfreeze the money that, that's in the European and American banks? Or is, is Wido still a viable political figure? No, Guaido at this point and in general, the Venezuelan opposition is, uh, you know, is in disarray and, it, and its weakest, weakest points in a, in, in a long time. The approval rating of Guaido and mo most of the opposition leaders is uh, as bad as, uh, as Maduro's. Um, so uh, most of the country is sort of disenchanted of politics and, you know, saying that, that they, they are, you know, individualistically uh, gonna solve their own situation. They don't, you know, they, they are not looking forward uh, to any political change because they don't think it's possible. Uh, and you can see that in the in the polls in a very dramatic uh, uh, way. So the the opposition, it's it's trying to regain some uh, uh, unity and force by convoking to some primaries uh, next year, uh, sort of towards the election of 2024. 
but at this point, uh, it, it's very clear that the only leverage that the opposition has comes from the United States. And and by the way, the 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 most of the parties in the coalition of uh, Juan Guaido have deserted him and have said that they will not support him continuing as interim president after January of next year when when his uh, uh, sort of term that they, they gave him expires. So uh, I think, you know, it's in, the other thing, of course, is the change, the geopolitical changes in Latin America, in which, you know, uh, allies of Maduro like uh, Lula and Petro have come into power. The, the, that changed a lot the world. And third, and, and another important factor is that the Europeans uh, also want a recognition of Maduro because of the energy situation. They really want Venezuela to come back to the world oil market and to the natural gas export market. And, and so they, they said, well, you know, the, the strategy with Juan Guaido uh, failed and we have to move on and deal with Maduro and, and focus on the 2024 elections. But has the U.S. recognized that it's back the loser in Guaido? Uh, I, I think the U.S. Has a, has a difficult situation because they don't want to recognize Maduro. They have all these issues related to these assets, not only the frozen assets in terms of you know money, but also the CITGO. Um, so uh, the, the U.S. is is in a in a pickle, in a difficult uh, position because they they on the one hand uh, cannot continue with the. Uh, the 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 recognition of of Guaido if their if their own if their own parties the, the parties uh, uh, in the national the former National Assembly of Venezuela are not supporting him but they uh, also want to see how they manage this situation uh, going on in January so I'm not sure what the U.S. Uh, will finally do Guaido is saying that he that he's going to continue until there are elections but he has lost uh, uh, most of the support. And so we have about a month uh, in which the U.S. and the opposition have to figure out what will happen. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes, then, uh, Francisco Manaldi, there are Venezuelan refugees pouring into the United States, along with refugees from Nicaragua as well, and from Cuba, and from Haiti, etc. But there's a lot of Venezuelans. I think what about about a third of the countries left Venezuela. What's the figure on how many, what percentage of the Venezuelan population have already left the country? The, the UN says about seven million people out of 33. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's not a, a very precise figure, but that's uh, sort of the best yeah. estimate that we have today. So is that a factor here that, you know, Biden's under pressure from the Republicans over the border and there's a considerable influx of Venezuelans now? which has contributed to the uptick in in this last year. Is that a factor that they're trying to sort of make life more livable in in Venezuela so people won't leave and come to the United States? I, I, I do think so. I think, you know, you from the very beginning that the Biden administration, there were uh, important figures there that wanted a change in the maximum pressure policy that they got from Trump. Uh, but they hadn't found sort of the sort of the opportunity in terms of you know, uh, 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 sort of the, the priority or the, the, the support of, of the higher ups in, in the White House. And, and I think the combination of the invasion of Ukraine and the uh, energy angle coming uh, into play and then uh, the, the Venezuelan refugee situation, both of them uh, made this a priority to, to deal with the Venezuelan uh, situation and made 
uh, you know, the, the people both in the State Department and, and, the, and the White House work hard with, uh, with the Norwegians and, and others to um, uh, move things along. And, and that's the result of what is what we're seeing now. Well, Francisco Manaldi, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Francisco Manaldi, who's a fellow in Latin American Energy Policy at the Center for Energy Studies in the Mexico Center and the Latin American Initiative at the Baker Institute, as well as a lecturer in energy economics at Rice University. He's also the founding director and a professor at the Center for Energy and the Environment at IESA in Venezuela, and previously was professor of political economy at the Universidad Católica Andrés Bello in Caracas, Venezuela. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into what extent of the benevolent offerings from billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, who've pledged to give away their massive fortunes, actually reach charities. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Chuck Collins, who's a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he directs the program on inequality and co-edits inequality.org. He's the author of Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality. Is inequality in America irreversible? And his latest book just out is The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. And he has an article at CNN, We Should Be Skeptical of Billionaires Who Pledge to Share Their Wealth. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chuck Collins. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And I guess you're a billionaire watcher, Chuck. (laughs) A terrible job, given the antics of the richest man in the world, Elon Musk, who is now turning Twitter into a sort of Republican rant group. So... The other billionaire is, I think, well, apart from the the Gulf and Saudi leaders, Jeff Bezos recently gave, what was it, $100 million to Dolly Parton? And I thought to myself, wait a minute, I mean, Dolly Parton's not exactly in the poorhouse. What was that all about? Well, I think what's happening is Jeff Bezos is kind of making friends, using his grant making to kind of varnish his own reputation, giving money to Dolly Parton before that to Van Jones. I think it's his way of saying, I'm associating myself with these people and the the goodwill that people feel toward them. And I'd like some of that to rub off on me. So I didn't know about Van Jones. What kind of a grant did he get and for what purpose? I think it was also $100 million for him to regrant, to give away to to, to, uh, other organizations. So the whole idea is recognizing their leadership and giving them a lot of money that they can in turn 
also give away. Well, I think Dolly Parton's been quite an active philanthropist, has she not? Yeah, um, she. You know, I think that's partly he's maybe associating himself with her, but because she, you know, she's really stepped up during the pandemic. She's kind of a uh, empathy in in action. Um, people have a lot of goodwill toward her. And I think what's happening with a lot of these billionaires is they realize they need to kind of varnish their reputations. And in his case, he hasn't actually given that money, much money to charity. He has $142 billion right now. Um, he has made some pledges and announcements, but that's very different than the money getting out the door and actually going to active nonprofits and organizations doing the work. Uh, and that's the problem. A lot of these billionaires give money to their own intermediaries, uh, and that, that slows down or indefinitely delays the flow of that money to the groups that really need it. Well, your article at CNN, uh, Chuck Collins, We Should Be Skeptical of Billionaires Who Pledge to Share Their Wealth, makes, I think, an incredibly important point, which is that the giving pledge that was the initiative of Warren Buffett Melinda Gates and Bill Gates to increase charitable giving by the extremely wealthy. As of today, I'm just reading from your article, more than 230 billionaires from 28 countries have taken the pledge to give away the majority of their wealth. But on the 10th anniversary of the pledge in 2020, you and your colleagues at the Institute for Policy Studies found that the total net worth of the 62 living initial pledges hadn't diminished in all, at all. In fact, it had nearly doubled when adjusted for inflation. So what happened to the money? I mean, did the pledges happen while the people that pledged to give this money doubled in their wealth? Yeah, what, you're, what you have is people saying, I'm taking the pledge, and they get a lot of publicity for that. But uh, as we found, the, the, their wealth is, is surging. So you, and these are the billionaires who've pledged to share it, to, to give half of it away while they're alive. Uh, not the not the ones that uh, continue to hoard it. So, so they have a problem, which is wealth has been accelerating for the billionaire class, and uh, especially during the pandemic, when you know in the last uh, two years, the wealth of U.S. billionaires has gone up a trillion and a half, uh, 1.5 trillion dollars. Um, so, so you know, it's it's meaningless to make an announcement. Is partly what I want to say. You know, it's. It's it's a it's a statement of intention, but the real measure should be when the money lands outside their domain, uh, you know, outside their private foundation or donor advised fund, and into the active work of a food bank or a local organization or Boys and Girls Club or whatever the the charity is. That should be the real measure, uh, and the and the point at which we acknowledge the gift. But there's also another aspect that you point out, Chuck Collins, and that is that the billionaires claim enormous tax deductions, you know, having made these pledges and then using these donor advisory funds that you mentioned, parking their funds in these intermediaries. For every dollar a billionaire gives to charity, we, the taxpayer, chips in up to 74 cents of that dollar in lost federal tax revenue as donors claim deductions in their income, estate, and capital gains taxes. So... What's the ratio between what they give and what they get back? Is it 74%? It's substantial. Yeah, the, the wealthier you are, the more you deduct because you're not only reducing your income tax, but you're reducing your inheritance tax and estate and gift taxes, 
which are taxes primarily paid by the ultra wealthy. But the important point here, Ian, is these are our tax dollars at work. So when we hear about a billionaire giving money to their alma mater or investing in some uh, cause that they care about, we should be thinking, hey, wait a second, we all chipped in for that. Uh, as you said, every dollar a billionaire gives, uh, the rest of us are chipping in in terms of lost tax revenue. And when a billionaire pays less taxes, the rest of us are going to pick up the slack. So again, these, these, these announcements about charity are supposed to make us all feel, you know, oh, aren't they great? Aren't they generous? Aren't they, you know, helpful to society? But they're getting a huge tax break and they get it the year that they make the gift. But that could be that money could be sitting in a private family foundation for generations before it moves out. Uh, or in the case of a donor advised fund, it could be sitting forever. There's no requirement that the funds actually move to an active charity. So tell us about donor advisory funds. Are they a kind of cut out, which is an, an intelligence term, but or are they like a 501c4? Do they hide the No, the they're, they are tax-exempt 501c3. It's as if you're giving to uh, any uh, qualified charity. The problem is the biggest ones are like Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, these, these large commercial DAFs, and they market themselves to their clients and they say, put the transfer the money from your you know, investment account over here to your, your donor advised charity account. You'll get a tax break immediately, but then you can uh, you know, sit on the money and maybe you want to invest it in an impact investment or you want to um, you know, pass it on to your children so that they might be able to give it away someday. It's being and, and, and they also are able to receive complex donations, crypto, stakes and hedge funds, appreciated assets that, that the donors get huge re reductions in their taxes for. So it's a great uh, instrument. It's a great way to give for the donors. Not so good for us taxpayers and for the nonprofit charities waiting to get grants. It's a form of warehousing wealth, and it's a it's a loophole that the investor class and the billionaires really have carved out and enjoy, uh, but it's not so good for the rest of society. But is it a way for billionaires to hide money through a donor advisory fund? You, what happens is, yeah, it becomes it starts to move money to the to the the dark money corners. Uh, and what we're finding is uh, a wealthy uh, donor will give money to a foundation, then that, that foundation will give to a DAF, and that DAF will give to another donor-advised fund, DAF. And next thing you know, you've lost the trace. And so some of that money is moving to you know, right-wing white supremacist groups and other conservative causes using these donor-advised funds. So it's something – again, these are our tax dollars – Taxpayer subsidized donations going to very uh, political work. But at the end of the day, you, what you're arguing here is that philanthropy is not an adequate substitute for an effective tax system where billionaires pay their fair share and democratically elected governments make decisions about investment priorities, not billionaires. You know, we know that Biden in, in the Inflation Reduction Act has managed to get $82 billion to the IRS. What's your sense of whether or not 
there will be some fairness now that there's a little... I mean, I, I don't know whether the $82 billion is going to buy the kind of wealth protection industry that the rich have, that have, you know, highly paid lawyers and accountants. What kind of asymmetry is there between the IRS's ability to collect uh, revenues and the wealth protection industry's highly skilled ways of, of hiding the wealth of billionaires and millionaires? Well, the, the, the IRS is, is completely outgunned by the private tax lawyers and accountants and, and wealth defense managers. Um, so <clears throat> with this investment, though, the hope is that the IRS can restaff itself. It used to have a more robust capacity for tracking the, uh, the antics and activities of the wealthy and the shell games that they play. And so the hope is that they will be able to rehire the capacity to do meaningful oversight. Uh, now, with the Republicans coming in in the House, I think they're going to make that even harder. They're going to have all their hearings about, oh, the IRS is so aggressive. But in fact, what what our society needs is a strong IRS when it comes to monitoring the ultra-wealthy. And I'm talking about people with $30 million or more. Those are the ones who are really gaming the system and for whom taxes have become almost optional. So we need to have that rigorous oversight, including on this charity sector, what you and I are talking about. Uh, there, there, you know, We should be making sure that the public interest is protected when donors give to, give to charity uh, and, and reduce their own taxes. It shouldn't, be, uh, it shouldn't be abused in the way it is. So tell us about the Accelerate Charitable Effectiveness, ACE Act. That's in the Senate, right? But apparently it's been stalled. It was introduced in 2021, but it's yet to be called up for a vote. Yeah, and, and the, this, is a, the, this legislation is, is uh, how do I say it? It's, it's very mild. It's, 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 uh, <clears throat> it's urging that funds from donor-advised funds be paid out within 15 years, requires a little bit of greater transparency. It's not as far as I would go. I mean, we should have legislation that increases the payout, uh, excludes, you know, overhead and uh, transfers to from foundations to donor advised funds. Those those don't count toward toward paying the payout requirements. Uh, and we should have more transparency. So we, we we know where the money is going, where the grants are being made. And uh, we can't we don't have these, you know, dark money donors siphoning money off to their uh, conservative right wing causes. So, you know, but it's true that the, the defense industry, the, the charity industry really has battled and pushed back. They don't want to have any changes. The, the defenders of the status quo, uh, the private foundation sector and the big commercial DAFs, they've pretty much uh, blocked uh, and urged their legislators to block these changes. So we just need to wake up the public. And, you know, the reality is the public, and we've done some polling, they think the money should be moved in two to three years. Forget these multi-generational private foundations that exist for decades. Uh, you know, move the, if you get a tax break, move the money to a qualified charity. End of sentence. You know, that, that should be the policy. So we have a little bit of ways to go to convince Congress that this is a problem and uh, to implement some very simple fixes. So... Chuck Collins, you mentioned uh, how some of the more headline-grabbing gifts from uh, Jeff Bezos 
And of course, I think Zuckerberg also didn't he promise to give away ninety percent of ninety nine percent of his money? Yeah, a lot of these a lot of these billionaires have made these announcements. Um, in the case of Zuckerberg, uh, he's pledging to give it to uh, a limited liability company. It's not even really a foundation, so it's not even meaningful at this point. It's like he's saying, "I'm giving it away," but it's like you and I saying, "You know, we're gonna." We're going to um, give all of our wealth away next year. You know, great. You know, we should be counting when the money leaves their control. Um, you know, and there are donors who do that. I mean, uh, Jeff Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, Mackenzie Scott, uh, two weeks ago gave away $2 billion. She didn't give it to her foundation. She gave it directly to groups. She's given $14 billion, uh, you know, in the last uh, six, four or five years. Um, so she's moving quickly, uh, not to create her own world of, of giving institutions, but to actually give the money directly. To me, that's more meaningful. Uh, you know, it's still we still have this problem, which is these wealthy billionaire donors have a lot of power, and they're using charity as an extension of their power and influence, and and that should be alarming to all of us. And so, in the end, we need to have a better, more effective tax system, and we need to protect our nonprofit sector from billionaire influence. Well, Chuck Collins, I, I appreciate your article and for filling us in on this whole area of philanthropy, if that's too generous a description, that doesn't get much coverage. And So um, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Chuck Collins, who's a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he directs the program on inequality and co-edits inequality.org. He's the author of Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality. Is inequality in America irreversible? And his latest book just out is The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. And he has an article at CNN, We Should Be Skeptical of Billionaires, who pledged to share their wealth. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow at 5 p.m. with another background briefing. Bye for now.